Welcome to Today on Broadway for Thursday, January 25th, 2018. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I'm Broadway World's Julie Musback. Julie, welcome back to the contiguous United States. Uh, You've been over in London for about a week, right? Yeah, it was just about a week. All right. Well, we're going to talk about some of your theatrically related uh, adventures across the pond later in the show. But you did see, as you told us last time, I think you saw Harry Potter and Julius Caesar. Was that it? Did you see anything else? I ended up going to Lady Windermere's fan as well. That was the sort of last minute ticket purchase. Oh, I know absolutely nothing about that. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. So stay tuned for Julie's very very insightful London theater critiques coming up at the end of the episode. And we will also have Daniela Parcell with her weekly theater throwback too. Uh, But before we get there, um, a few things that I want to throw out before we get into the news proper. First off, last night, as you probably saw all over social media, the Phantom of the Opera celebrated 30 years on Broadway with a special red carpet ceremony that was hosted by former Christine Daae and like 27 different productions across two different shows, Sierra Bagus, as well as her good friend, Imogen Lloyd Webber, who is, of course, not surprisingly, the daughter of Andrew Lloyd Webber. And we're recording this before the show is over, but apparently there's going to be some special appearances after the show on stage. And like often happens with these anniversary concerts, I imagine it will be quite a few former Phantoms and Christines and maybe some Rauls in there, maybe singing some songs as well. So we'll have some uh, footage of that on Broadway World. You can check out the links here in the show notes if you want to see that. And then also yesterday, the 74th Annual Theater Awards announced their ceremonies date for 2018. It will take place on Monday, June 4th at a theater to be named shortly. As always, as has been the case for many, many decades now, our very own Peter Felicia will be hosting the event, which he is very proud to do. This, of course, is an invitation-only event, but if you are a regular listener and want an invitation, maybe email James, and James might be able to put you in touch with somebody, Peter, who can get you an invitation. That's pretty much all I've got, Julie. Any other things that we need to cover before we dive into the news proper? Not that I can think of. I just know the Theater World Awards are that they're a really fun event. It's a very theater for theater people happening sort of thing. It's really exciting to see. Yeah, and what the theater awards are, if you don't know, is the theater awards recognize people who are making either their Broadway or off-Broadway debuts and do some sort of uh, fantastic performance in either of those. So they could be somebody who's never been on stage in New York, or they can be someone who maybe has been off-Broadway and then is making their Broadway debut and is really sensational. So I know that's a, a highlight of Peter's year every year. Okay, so first big story, we've got Tootsie the Musical, which is going to play Chicago before it heads out to Broadway. Yes, we have heard rumblings about this for a while, but yesterday it became official as producers announced that a pre-Broadway engagement of a musical adaptation of the film Tootsie will play Chicago's Palace Theater from September 11th through October 14th, ahead of a planned Broadway bow in the spring of 2019. If you are unfamiliar with the iconic Dustin Hoffman film, which... Julie, I know you are completely unfamiliar with. (laughs) It centers on a frustrated actor named Michael Dorsey who dresses up as a woman to land a role on a soap opera and subsequently becomes a big star using the name Dorothy Michael. Playing the role will be none other than Tony nominee Santino Fontana. 
And while that is exciting, what is also equally exciting about this production is that David Yazbek, who will most certainly be a Tony winner by the time the show bows in Chicago, has written the score, and Robert Horn has written the book. The show will be directed by Scott Ellis and choreographed by Dennis Jones. No further cast members have yet been announced, but there was a fairly recent reading that starred Santino, as well as Stephanie J. Block and Mark Kudish. Now, SJB has been linked to a certain show planning a Chicago tryout before coming to Broadway as well, a different show. So we will see which, if either of those two shows, she ends up being involved with by the time they get to Chicago and or Broadway. Julie, I know you don't know anything about Tootsie. It predates you, but it's a show that I think had a lot of social commentary going on even before its time was a little ahead of itself. But I think I said this in our Slack channel about um, the proposed musical version of Mrs. Doubtfire. Both of those movies depend on the fact that a man is dressing up as a woman for a lot of their commentary. And both of them, it just makes me a little uncomfortable in today's society if we're going to derive a lot of humor from that conceit that was funny 10, 20, 30 years ago, I guess. Um, but might play a little different today. So I'm a little concerned about how that will play with modern sensibilities, especially for a theater audience. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's sort of a delicate subject at this point, something that has to be played off in the right way. And I think it's getting harder to laugh at a lot of those jokes. So it'll be interesting to see if they can land them correctly. Yeah, and that's probably not dissimilar from another show that's going to be playing Chicago fairly soon before it comes to Broadway, and that's Pretty Woman. I think the humor in that, while obviously very different, but when you're talking about a female sex worker or a prostitute, I think the jokes um, there are very different, especially in the Me Too, Time's Up movement that we are in. I, I think that you've got to be very careful about how you play these things for laughs, but with the creative teams behind most of these shows, I, I'm knock on what I... I think I trust them some more than others. I'm not <laughs> spilling any tea here, but I think I trust some of these people more than others. But we'll see. It's a fantastic movie and very funny. Um, so, and it's it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I I'm hoping they'll do that well. Yeah, I think Pretty Woman also has a lot of room for those feminist angles, which I know they've said that they're going to try and top up and make more of a focus in the show. Whereas Tootsie, I worry that with a male main character, it might get a little touchier or hard to do that you, you know what would have would have gone a long way to convincing me that they were interested in actually making pretty woman a, a more feminist musical that would be actually having a woman on the creative team but yes you know, i would agree <laughs> last week james and i talked about they do have a very hands-on female producer helping them but you know let's maybe mix in a woman on the uh on the creative side of things too guys so but anyway moving on julie all right, so we have got rumors that Jonathan Groff's Bobby Darren story could be aiming for Broadway. Yes, this is a story that should not surprise anyone if they've been paying attention to all of the rave reviews coming out of last week's concert production of the show over at the 92nd Street Y. The musical concert, which featured Groff along with Stephanie Stiles, George Salazar, David Pitu, and Elena Shadow, was part of the Lyrics and Lyricist series, which is now under the direction of the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization's president, Ted Chapin. The show, which Chapin originally saw in Australia and thought would be perfect for the series, got rave reviews and, according to the New York Post's Michael Riedel, is already garnering interest from Broadway producers for a potential transfer. According to Riedel, Chicago and Waitress producer Barry Weisler is actively working on securing the rights to the show, probably as we speak. 
The show features Darren's iconic songs Beyond the Sea, Mac the Knife, Dream Lover, and more, and chronicles his life from a young crooner to an outspoken political activist during the Vietnam War era to his death at age 37 following heart surgery. Now, Julie, I don't know anyone who doesn't love Groff. Like, he just seems, not only is he super talented, and I'm, I guess, attractive, whatever, uh, but he also <laughs> seems like an incredibly nice, down-to-earth guy. Um, I'm also a big fan of Styles, who I saw in the uh, the Newsies tour, and Shadow, who, like me, is from Ohio and is a big Ohio State football fan. I think if they can do this, I, I, I don't, I mean, it was a concert, and I know it was a a show in Australia. If it can translate well to the stage, I think this seems like a really good property. But do you know much about Darren? Like, do you know who Bobby Darren is? But is this a show that interests you at all, whether it has Groff or not? You know, I don't know much about Bobby Darren other than listening to, you know, the music here and there, but they've become such standards that it's kind of hard to differentiate at this point, yeah. you know, who's done what. And, you know, if I've even ever heard his version of something, I don't always know, to be honest. I think it definitely has a place on Broadway right now with all of these, you know, biopic stories and all of the remakes and, you know, sort of non-original stories. I think it could (laughs) find success there. Yeah, the cast does sound great. I mean, if they could transfer with that cast, I know Jonathan Groff, I haven't seen him in much, to be honest. I saw him, you know, in concert at 54 Below once or twice. Um, Elena Shadow, I worked with her on Mary Poppins at Paper Mill, and she's absolutely fabulous. But yeah, I think it could be an interesting thing to see. I don't know if I would see it on Broadway, but I think it could make it all the way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it definitely plays to the target demographic of Broadway, older white people um, with disposable <laughs> income. Um, but I, I do think that it does have something for the younger generations because Groff is a bit of a crossover star with Frozen, not unlike Santino Fontana. Um, And he's also the star of Mindhunter, the Netflix David Fincher crime drama, which got picked up for a second season back in November. So I I think it has an interesting thing there. And also it will help erase the memory of the film version of Bobby Darren's life called Beyond the Sea, which uh, featured um, the now disgraced Oscar and Tony winner Kevin Spacey. So if we can move Groff into the role as the leading Bobby Darren interpreter, I think that's probably a good thing. I could see that. And I think he's definitely got the voice for it. Absolutely. Yeah, he's super talented. All right. So we also had some big news out of MTC today. They announced their upcoming Broadway shows. Yeah. Yesterday, the Manhattan Theater Club announced three new shows for the 2018-2019 season, including two that are destined for Broadway. The first of which is the American premiere of One Man, Two Governors playwright Richard Bean's new play, The Nap, which will begin performances this fall on September 4th, directed by Daniel Sullivan. According to press notes, The Nap is a very funny look at the world of snooker, the British version of Pool. In it, Dylan Spokes, a fast-rising young star, arrives for a championship tournament, only to be confronted by the authorities warning him of the repercussions of match-fixing. Do you know what match-fixing is, Julie? That's a kind Do of an ins- that's a mat that's a that's a sports term there when you um oh, you basically when you decide who's going to win. Yeah, you collude, you collude either with the other team or you cheat to make it bit more beneficial for gamblers. Um, But before he knows it, Dylan's forced into underhanded dealings with a cast of wildly colorful characters that include his ex-convict dad, saucy mum, quick-tongued manager, and a renowned gangster to boot. 
Then, two days after Christmas this year, the Broadway premiere of Terrell Alvin McCraney's play Choir Boy will begin performances on Broadway under the direction of Trip Coleman. McCraney is the playwright who turned his own stage play into the Academy Award-winning film Moonlight. Choir Boy was originally produced off-Broadway by MTC in 2013 and focuses on the Charles R. Drew Prep School for Boys, which has been dedicated to the education of strong, ethical black men. However, one talented student has been waiting for years to take his rightful place as the leader of the legendary gospel choir. But can he make his way through the hallowed halls of this institution if he sings in his own key? Both The Nap and Choir Boy will be, of course, taking up house at Broadway's Samuel J. Friedman Theater, while the world premiere of Jacqueline Backhouse's play India Pale Ale will play off-Broadway in New York City Center. This MTC production will be directed by Will Davis and will begin performances on October 2nd. According to press notes, in a small Wisconsin town, a tight-knit Punjabi community gathers to celebrate the wedding of a traditional family's only son, just as their strong-willed daughter announces her plans to move away and open a bar. As they come together for feasts filled with singing and dancing, one generation's cherished customs clash with another's modern-day aspirations, and ghosts and pirates from the family's past linger in everyone's thoughts. I'm assuming those are like metaphorical pirates, not actual pirates, uh, (laughs) until one sudden event changes everything. The show does reunite Backhouse and Davis, who previously collaborated on her play Men in Boats at Playwrights Horizons in 2016, which did feature boats, but did not feature a single man. So uh, that was a fun one a couple years ago. Anyway, uh, you know, Julie, I've often felt that MTC can get a little bit insular and crusty um, with their programming. You know, like I said about the Bobby Darren thing, catering to an old upper crust white crowd. But these three shows, at least to me, are all exciting and, and mostly represent voices that I don't think we often hear enough from at our prestige not-for-profit companies in New York. Right, yeah, I would agree. I think they all sound very interesting, very new, very fresh, as opposed to a lot of the things that I've heard about coming towards Broadway lately. I'd be very interested to see how they do. I just, I hope they don't get buried by things like Tootsie or the Bobby Darren story, not that they're on at the same time, but you know, I always worry about these shows that are more artistically inclined getting covered up by all of the big name blockbuster hits. Yeah, especially when you're comparing straight plays to musicals. I mean, James and I had this discussion the other day on the show that there is almost a very clear delineation between people who are musical people and people who are play people. And of course, there's some overlap in the middle. That's not uh, there's a there is an overlap on the Venn diagram. But people who go and see plays, as we talked about from the Broadway League stats, see more plays than people who consider themselves musical people. And, And there's definitely an audience for this, especially at MTC, since it is a subscriber based organization. But I would find it surprising if either of these became huge breakout hits. I think they'll cater to their audiences and hopefully will um, you know, become bigger than the, you know, three hundred, you know, thousand dollar a week grossing shows. But you know what what I think is most important about these shows getting the opportunity to play on Broadway or in terms of Backhouse's play um off Broadway, it's the exposure that they get for the playwrights who can not only say they had a show on Broadway, but also it helps the licensing of their shows uh regionally, um, more so than if it was just done at you know, one of the smaller off-Broadway theaters. That still helps, but that validation of being able to say the Broadway production and then it gets more licensing opportunities in the regional theaters, I think that's big. And I think that representation matters for Broadway's future and for bringing in people who don't look, frankly, Julie, like you and me. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. If there's one thing I've learned working in multiple sides of theater, it's that plays are hard to sell. It's hard to get an audience into a play unless you have a huge name like, you know, Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon and Little Foxes. Right. But I definitely think you're right. The most important thing about this, I think, is that stories that you don't typically hear are going to be told and whether or not they find their audience on the first try. I think it's just most important that it gets out there that everyone has a chance. Absolutely. All right. So we have some more show and casting news to go through. Yes. I got a couple things here. So uh, I'm just going to go through both of them. Julie, if you want to talk about them, stop me first. Uh, We already knew that the Temptations bio musical Ain't Too Proud was scheduled for a run at Washington, D.C.'s Kennedy Center this summer. But yesterday we learned that it has two more out-of-town stops before it eventually or presumably arrives on Broadway, as is their intention. The musical, which features a book by playwright Dominique Moriso and features many of the Motown group's legendary songs, played at Berkeley Rep late last year, and following a stop at the nation's capital, will head back to California for a six-week run at L.A.'s Amundsen Theater beginning on August 21st, and then will head north of the border to play at Toronto's Princess of Wales Theater, from October 10th through November 17th. The show is directed by Des McEnough and choreographed by Sergio Trujillo. That duo was also behind the upcoming Broadway show Summer, colon, the Donna Summer musical, which also ran in California in late 2017, but got much less favorable reviews than Ain't Too Proud did. It'll be interesting to me, since it did get fairly good reviews, to see if The Temptations show continues to make changes to fine-tune itself before arriving on Broadway, I would assume, in the spring of next season. Now, one place that Ain't Too Proud is not going to be playing before it comes to Broadway is Chicago. But you know who is going to be there? None other than Dwight Schrute himself, Rain Wilson, who will lead the cast of the upcoming Steppenwolf Theater Company production of the world premiere of the Doppelganger an international farce, which is just a fun title. Reminds me of like Austin Powers or something. Um, written by Matthew Lee Erlbach, the show will be feature, uh, will be directed by Steppenwolf ensemble member, the legendary Tina Landau, currently represented on Broadway by SpongeBob SquarePants. Rain Wilson will play Thomas Erdley slash Jimmy. I guess that has something to do with the doppelganger title that he has two characters. Um, previews begin for the show on April 5th and are scheduled to run through May 27th. Steppenwolf ensemble member Gary Bingo Bob Russell Cole will no longer be a part of the production due to an unforeseen scheduling conflict. Now, Julie, we don't know each other super well. Uh, we're, we're, we're colleagues, but you kind of strike me as someone who would be a fan of The Office. I do like The Office. It was never one of my favorite shows, but I do have the proper appreciation for it. Yes. <laughs> what, what would the proper appreciation be exactly? <laughs> You know, I recognize that it's very funny and it's very good. I just, I'm not, you know, completely committed to it, but I like to watch it, you know, when it comes up on TV or something. And I know all the characters, I know everybody, and I know how it all works and how it ends. And the ending episode was one of the best endings that I've seen on a sitcom. It's just, it's a funny show. Okay, I I have to tell you, I'm I'm not a huge Office fan. I, uh, I like it, like you said, but I'm not an awkward comedy guy if people listen to something like a pop that's not my thing like anything that makes you uncomfortable like i distinctly remember as a kid covering my face with a pillow while my family was watching who's the boss because something happened that made me uncomfortable i'm just not that guy like (laughs) awkward stuff is not my thing so i appreciate the office and its humor and i love ricky gervais uh the creator but eh, not my thing 
All right. So we've also got exciting news out of TV. Uh, we've got a bit of a crossover. Is it, is it exciting? Is it? I, you tell me. I think me. it's exciting. Okay. You tell me that. Riverdale what, what are... is going to stage Carrie the Musical. Are, are you a Riverdale person, Julie? I'm not. I just know that Carrie the Musical is something that has a real cult following, as oh. I think Riverdale does as well. So Yes. I, I think, think it's good news for the fans. Yeah, I think in terms of the theater people who watch Riverdale, they are probably also the people who obsess about Carrie the Musical. I watched the the first episode of Riverdale, the pilot, and I was like, yeah, this show is not for me, uh, even though I love <laughs> the CW. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, Riverdale is the Archie and Jughead TV show that is nothing like the comics that you are familiar with. It is a very dark, brooding, mysterious TV show. And apparently later this season, on April 8th at 8 p.m., the episode will feature the Riverdale High School Drama Department putting on Carrie the Musical. The characters will be playing uh, the roles themselves. And unlike, you know, other musical-slash-TV shows, Glee... They will actually be doing 11 numbers from Carrie the Musical in the episode. The show's resident bad girl, Cheryl Blossom, played by Madeline Pettich. I'm sure I'm screwing that name up. She will be playing Carrie in the episode. And they did this funny thing that looks like a cast sign-up list with everybody saying it. Um, That was pretty cute. Yeah, that was nice. (laughs) Yeah, Archie will be playing Tommy. Uh, Betty Cooper will be playing Sue. Uh, Veronica will be playing Chris Harginson. Um, it's uh, really nice. Uh, it's really fun. Um, Jughead will be uh, playing the beak, and he will also be documenting it backstage, which is how I think we're going to get some uh, backstage footage of what goes on at Riverdale. The person who's directing the show in the Riverdale universe is Kevin Keller, who is played by Casey Cott, who is the brother of Broadway's Corey Cott. He's also a musical theater guy, went to Michigan. Um, I, so I'm a little surprised they're using him in that role rather than letting him sing, but hopefully he'll get a chance to as well i've seen carrie the musical and it was fine uh like i said riverdale's not my thing but i think i'm gonna have to tune in anyway just to see what the hell they do with this i might have to take a look at it too i've never seen anything of this show but i might have to see this yeah like it's just what like what the hell is going (laughs) on here i i have to admit i am a fan of some things archie a comic book that I love is called Afterlife with Archie. It's um, a zombie apocalypse version of Riverdale. It was written by uh, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who's also a playwright and helped revise Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark and tried to make it less horrible. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll figure it out. Yeah, sure. Why not? And <laughs> there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about, and it ties into the Phantom of the Opera's 30th anniversary. Julie, you might not know this, but Broadway World effectively started as a Michael Crawford fan club page. Did you know that? You know, I knew that our founder and Boss. you know master of all, Robert <laughs> Diamond, loves Michael Crawford. I knew that when I saw in his apartment that he is a framed poster of Dance the Vampires that is signed yeah. by Michael Crawford, and you would have to love Michael Crawford a lot to love Dance <laughs> of the Vampires. Yes, and to true. show other people that yeah. you love Dance of the Vampires. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, so um, uh, Broadway World, as James and I joke about uh, all the time, uh, started as a Michael Crawford fan page, and to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Phantom of the Opera, Rob, our boss, talked with his now good friend Michael Crawford uh, about his history with the show. If you want to check out that interview, it is a lot of Rob 
not a lot of him fanboying uh, because they are good friends now. Uh, but there's you you can tell there's a uh, quite a bit of admiration and love uh, in the interview, and uh, <laughs> uh, so you can uh, read that. We'll have a link in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. Now, Julie, now that we've got all the news out of the way, um, let's talk about London. So you went over there just to kind of have a little vacay. And uh, you threw in some theater as well as some sightseeing. But let's stick to the theater stuff. You saw parts one and two of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And I think, you know, you had some good advice going in that you want to pass along about this show. So tell me all about the Hufflepuff stuff. Is that right? Am I saying that right? I don't <laughs> slither well, in. have a little bit of it. Okay, okay. now you've got two out of four. So I don't think I'm going to press you for the other ones. Yeah, I'm too scared to find out what you might think they're called. No. Um, but yes, the advice that I got from a friend of mine who had seen it was it's very, very good if you don't ask much of the plot. Because to be honest, it does come across as sort of a bad fan fiction of Harry Potter. But, you know, it's the world that we've all loved for so long and it's, you know, seeing it in a new new way and seeing these characters that we've loved for a while in a new part of their life and, you know, following, following their kids around and seeing what happens. And, you know, there are parts of it I think that we definitely needed to explore the questions of. It's like what ifs that we needed to experience. But there are some other things that I, I do question a little bit, but the production is fantastic. The cast is amazing, and it was it was really really fun. Okay, so basically, go in with your expectations being to have a good time, not to see Shakespearean level drama. Right, and not to see something where you're following the logic of it the whole way through. You know, it's a kind of story where you need to go, oh, okay, that's Suspen- what we're doing now. <laughs> yeah, suspension of disbelief will be a good skill to have uh, for that one. Okay, so yes. you saw you saw Harry Potter. You saw Julius Caesar at, I believe, National Theater, right? I think we settled on that last time. Yeah, it was National Theater's production at the Bridge Theater, which I believe is a brand new venue. And it was wild. It was crazy. My friend and I got tickets for the pit, so we were standing the whole time. It's two hours, no intermission. And Nice. It's it's crazy. It's almost borderline immersive. It's like you stand in the pit and you've got like this rock band opens the show and it's a sort of rolling opening. And then from, you know, scene to scene, you're pushed around by these special ushers that are trained to like move you out of the way and tell you where to go as these set pieces rise right. out of the floor. So you really have to get out of the way. Um, but yeah, the characters are sort of they're moving around you. You've got um, some of them coming through the audience. My friend got bear hugged by a woman. Oh. <laughs> and it's just, it was so cool. It was just totally different from anything else I've seen. I know a lot of those old white people in the audience were very confused <laughs> and did leave. Good for them. And, <laughs> you know, see you later. Yeah, sometimes Bye-bye. you really need one of those productions that's going to force the older audience to think you know, differently, or maybe they're going to walk out and that's fine because theater is changing. It's, it's an evolving art, but it was just so cool. It was so different from anything else I've seen. And, um, Ben Wishaw and Michelle, Michelle fairly played Brutus and Cassius respectively. How were they? They were absolutely amazing. Oh my God. They were just fantastic. Michelle Fairley's is one of my favorite actors. She was just, she was perfect. They sort of gender cast the show differently, you know, in a lot yeah. of regards. And 
that I didn't realize how refreshing that was going to be because Julius Caesar is a tough one. You know, it's like if you get Calpurnia and Portia out of the show by act two, it's sort of like, where are the women? (laughs) So it was great to see these female characters in a different light and in that male persona where they've got power and anger. Very cool. All right. And what was this last thing that you saw that I've never heard of? I saw Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's fan uh, okay. at the vaudeville. Yeah, that was that was really cute. I saw it because Jennifer Saunders was in it. She's one of the stars, um, and she's sort of my hero. That's you know what I want to be when I grow up. Okay. And so she was in it, and it was just you know it's a funny show. It's witty in that Oscar Wilde way, and it was that was different, but it was very very British, and I really liked it. Very, very British. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Some I like the it. things that the people laughed at. I like, I didn't connect them. I couldn't figure yeah. out why I was, but it's all these, you know, dainty social niceties that you don't really think about anymore. Yeah, I get you. I get you. All right. Well, if you have any questions uh, about London theater, uh, Julie is now our resident expert. Um, if not, we could send you over to John Schwab from uh, from Curtain Call. But uh, that's great. I'm glad you had a great time. I'm glad you got back here safe. And now you're rejuvenated for an exciting spring season in New York. All right. And before we head out today, here's Daniela Parcell with a theater throwback. Hi, everybody. This is Daniela Parcell, and I'm here with this week's theater throwback. So today we are going way, way back to January 21st, 1903, which was the opening night of The Wizard of Oz on Broadway. This production ran for about nine months at the Majestic Theater, not the Majestic we know today. This one was located near Columbus Circle, and it was only operational until 1949. This was one of the first adaptations of L. Frank Baum's children's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which was published just a few years prior. And Baum early on had the idea of adapting his story for the stage, so he actually wrote much of the initial libretto and the lyrics himself. A man named Paul Tietjens was the original composer, but there was some drama between him and the director, Julian Mitchell. Julian didn't like what Paul was writing, and by the time the show opened out of town in Chicago, Paul had fled to Europe. Another composer was brought in to patch things up, but it's unclear how much and what exactly this new guy actually wrote for the show. The Wizard of Oz ran in Chicago for 12 weeks and then toured the Midwest before getting to Broadway in January of 1903. Audiences everywhere absolutely loved this musical, or musical extravaganza as it was called back then. The basic plot of this adaptation was fairly similar to the one we know today, but there was this subplot, I guess, where a king is trying to overthrow the wizard and regain his throne. That part was not included in the original novel and obviously did not make it into the film that we all know and love. But being a musical extravaganza, the plot wasn't what excited audiences about this 1903 production. People loved the song and dance, the comedy, and the at the time spectacular scenic effects. There was a tornado scene and a beautiful glittering emerald city that people couldn't get enough of. It truly was an extravaganza, and it quickly became a favorite of that generation. After its nine-month Broadway run, the musical went on tour. They sent out two companies, one of which featured the original Broadway stars, and the production could be seen all over the country until 1909. It also ended up coming back to Broadway just a few years after it closed, and then was released for regional productions back in 1911. 
Nowadays, we rarely see the specific adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, so that we're clear if you're seeing The Wizard of Oz today, it's definitely not this. By the time that the movie came out, which was 1939, this show had pretty much died down. It has popped up again here and there in the past couple of decades, though. Some companies in Canton, Ohio and Tarpon Springs, Florida actually restaged it some years ago, and recordings from the musical were released in 2003. Today, of course, we all know The Wizard of Oz film starring Judy Garland, and there have also been plenty of subsequent stage adaptations since. And I highly recommend looking up this 1903 production and looking through some of the pictures and the costumes from it because they're pretty strange and different from what we know today. That is all I have for this week. Thanks everybody for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Daniela Parcel, and I'll be back next week with another theater throwback. All right, thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt and subscribe to Something Like a Pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Julie, where can people find you online? I am on Twitter at Julie Musbeck, and I am on Instagram at JulieK26. I've got some London photos up. Oh, very nice, very nice. Uh, uh, James and I will be back tomorrow, so have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on Friday. <laughs>